First, a reminder of the one with whom we have chosen to be associated, Jesus Christ, wanted for sedition, criminal anarchy, vagrancy, and conspiring to overthrow the established government. Dresses poorly, said to be a carpenter by trade, has visionary ideas, associates with common working people, the unemployed, and bums. Alien, believed to be a Jew. Alias, Prince of Peace, Son of Man, Light of the World, Professional Agitator, Red Beard, Marks on Hands and Feet, the result of injuries inflicted by an angry mob led by respectable citizens, churchgoers, and authorities. Secondly, what is the point of our attempts at solid, illuminating Bible study? The words of Scripture are living words with permanent value, as transmitting life now and life forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Wisdom offered to pour out my spirit on us, which is equivalent to making my words known to you. Proverbs 1, verse 23. Test the spirits by testing the words. John exhorted us in 1 John 4, 1 to 6. Whose spirit are you expressing with your words? asks Job in Job 26, verse 4. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through the mouth of David, and thus God's words were on David's lips. Second Samuel 23, verses 1 to 2. What was true of the sweet singer of Israel should be true of us. Confusion over the words of Scripture leads to a reduction and blockage of spirit. Pop, soda, and coke. I've learned that various people sharing a common American heritage and language nevertheless confuse us when they speak of their favorite drink. Just imagine how bewildering all this can be for the foreigner not trained in the ins and outs of language usage. I believe the public is equally flummoxed when trying to read the Bible. I remember, of course, as a child of 13 at boarding school, making every year a firm resolution to read the New Testament and failing after about two chapters of genealogical lists of unpronounceable names in Matthew. I could not make heads or tails of it. I did not know the language. Oh, I knew English all right, but had no idea about the meaning of the key terms, Son of God, Kingdom of God, even God. When I later asked the clergyman about Matthew 5, verse 5, and inheriting the earth, he said, Good question, lad. I will have to think about it. And when I also asked if he preached on the second coming, he said that was the one sermon he really hated doing though he was supposed to tackle the subject once a year on Advent Sunday. The confused situation today with 30,000 denominations is akin to the story of the king in the Old Testament who took his scissors and cut up the text of Scripture and threw it in the fire.
That's in Jeremiah 36, verse 23. And it came to pass that when Jehuda had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a scribe's penknife and cast it into the fire on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire. People are cutting up the text, failing to put the pieces of the puzzle together to make a harmonious, intelligible whole and suffering the inevitable consequences of non-comprehension. 2% of 7 million Londoners are attending church regularly. They apparently are not interested in Jesus, nor in their own destiny. How can they not find the Bible a captivatingly interesting book? I think they need help in understanding it. Jesus was insistent on a good understanding. Have you understood these things? He said in Matthew 13, verse 51. John says that Jesus came to give us an understanding in order to know God. That's 1 John 5, verse 20. And Isaiah 53, verse 11 says that the Messiah makes righteous by his knowledge. Not understanding the words of Jesus and the New Testament is something to be avoided on pain of death. Jesus makes the reception of his creative, saving words the absolute hallmark of successful Christianity. At the climax of his ministry, in John 12, Jesus shouts. He does this really, but he also used to shout or cry out when he gave his explanation of the parable of the sower in Luke 8, verse 8. Note the imperfect tense here. He customarily used to raise his voice. Jesus shouts also in John 12, verse 44, for good reason. Our immortality depends on our listening to the words of Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. Jesus said, the person who believes in me believes in the one who commissioned me, that is, appointed me as his agent. I came as a light. If someone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I didn't come to judge, but to save. The person who refuses and rejects and will not receive my words has one who judges him. The very word I spoke will judge him on the last day. That's John chapter 12, verses 44 to 48. If we were the devil, we would work hard at making the words of Jesus incomprehensible. We could still, however, safely ask people to, quote, accept Jesus. That would sound reassuring. Accepting Jesus is here precisely defined as equivalent to accepting the words of Jesus. Peter speaks about both obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. And the words of Jesus are summarized, of course, under the umbrella term gospel of the kingdom. Why then is the public constantly asked to accept Jesus 
but never to accept the kingdom gospel word and words of Jesus. Failure to perceive the equivalency principle, that's to say accept, believe in Jesus, is equal to accept the words of Jesus, causes them a lot of grief. Pursuing the equivalency principle further, does John use the word faith? The Greek word is pistis. Actually, no. Not really. Only once in the epistles. Then John did not have anything to say about faith. If you take evidence woodenly, he did not. He said almost nothing about faith. But this conclusion would be absurd. John, in fact, used the more dynamic verb to believe constantly. So he did have lots to say about belief or faith. Did John use the word gospel? Not once. So he was not interested in the gospel? That would be nonsense. He prefers the very strong and legally tinged word testimony and the verb testify. He did not use the verb to proclaim or to evangelize, but he believed in both concepts passionately. He just used other vocabulary to cover the same concepts. He engaged in equations or equivalences. The testimony or gospel of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. So the gospel of the kingdom is the spirit of prophecy. God's people are to be prophets of the coming kingdom. Paul uttered his famous last words to Timothy by solemnly testifying to both the coming and kingdom. And then he said, preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. So the word is equivalent here as often elsewhere to the gospel of the kingdom. Not to see these equivalences is consciously or unconsciously to compartmentalize and fragment the New Testament and to fail to see its great unifying message. It is to read the Bible in a fog. Did Jesus believe in justification? Did he teach this as the basis of a right relationship with God? Everyone knows that Paul did. His rather heavy, as it now sounds to us, and as it's now translated after all the endless argumentation about justification, his rather heavy language, Paul's, has become the standard for many when talking about salvation. But did Jesus use the word justify? The verb or the noun? Certainly not the noun, and very rarely the verb. He spoke of the man who, unlike the pious Pharisee, pleaded with God for mercy as justified. Jesus did say that we are to be justified by what we say or fail to say. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 12, verse 37. But the word justify is very rare in the recorded sayings of Jesus. So did Jesus not believe in justification, being right with God rather than wrong? 
straight before God rather than crooked before God? Of course he did. Jesus was deeply interested in our being right before God. He came to save the lost. Jesus spoke about us being forgiven, and he meant the same thing. Did Paul use the noun forgiveness in his letters often? Not really. Twice in the late epistles, not in Romans at all. Paul used the verb forgave once only in Colossians 3 verse 3. Paul prefers the word justify, to put right, to pronounce pardoned, telling us that we are no longer on spiritual death row. Romans 4 demonstrates this principle of equivalency beautifully and, most important, it unifies Paul with Jesus. In Romans, Paul is making his point about justification. The Greek noun is related to the verb being right or righteous, right with God rather than wrong with God. Romans 4 verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted in his favor as making him right, justified. In the same breath, Paul goes on, pulling in another proof text, this time from the Psalms. How delightful it is for the man, how blessed is he whose lawlessness has been forgiven, verses 7 and 8. No difference between being forgiven and being justified. Paul quotes two proof texts relating to Old Testament heroes to make his point about justification. It means to be forgiven, like David, when we believe, like Abraham. And if we were in any doubt, Luke reports Paul's famous sermon in Antioch where he announced, I want you to know that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Acts 13.38 In Acts, Luke simplifies Paul for us, reporting his teaching in more popular and less scholarly language. Talking about using two equivalent proof texts to teach one's point, note Hebrews 1 verse 5, where we have a brilliant bringing together of 2 Samuel 7, 14 and Psalm 2 verse 7. I will be the Messiah's father and today I have begotten you. Both of these point to the all-important origin of the Son of God in Mary. Did John use the word repent or repentance? Not once in all his writings. But of course, John very much believed in our repenting. He included it, no doubt, in the idea of believing after forsaking sin, which he described as failure to believe in Jesus. Yes, sin means not believing in or believing Jesus. John 16 verse 9, and believing in Jesus or believing Jesus, which are also equivalent, I think, means believing in the words of Jesus. No words of Jesus, no Jesus. We are what we think and say. If you won't believe in Moses and his writings, how can you believe my words? Jesus said in John 5 verse 47, 
He who hears my word, thus believes the one who sent me. John 5 verse 24. Whoever does not accept the kingdom of God as a child will not enter it. Luke 18 verse 17. This is the equivalent of being born again by accepting the kingdom gospel. Did Jesus preach the gospel? Evangelicals I've asked are not quite sure. Did he not just die for the gospel? They sometimes say. Compare here Billy Graham's famous words. Jesus came to do three days work, to die, be buried, and rise. Half the gospel, said Billy Graham, is the death of Jesus, and the other half is his resurrection. According to your Greek texts and some good translations, Jesus preached the gospel and Paul preached the gospel. But the NIV, which we need to watch carefully, allows Jesus to preach the good news of the kingdom, but never the gospel of the kingdom. The NIV very inconsistently allows the word gospel and kingdom to occur together only in Matthew 24, verse 14. Thus they destroy the equivalency of good news and gospel, the same word evangelion in the Greek, by giving the impression that these are different. That is about as bad as saying that the kingdom of heaven is not the equivalent of kingdom of God. Chuck Swindoll seems uncertain about this, this equivalence of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. He says they seem to refer to the same thing. You find that in Understanding Christian Theology by Chuck Swindoll. Here's another equivalence. Repenting, believing the gospel of the kingdom, and being forgiven are all one package, the key to conversion and regeneration. Luke 8.12, Mark 4.11.12. But evangelicals have been taught not to see that equivalence. They have been instructed out of Paul, and particularly Romans. They have been told that the gospel is in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, which read, Confess Jesus and believe God resurrected him. But they are not pointed to the equivalent defining concept in verse 17. Believing, Paul said, originates in hearing the gospel of Christ. That is the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus preached it. Evangelicals do not know that Paul and Jesus taught the same gospel truth using different language. Evangelicals do not know that Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed is implied by Paul in his words about being born of the Spirit and born of the promise, Galatians 4 verse 28. Missing in their system is the equivalence between preaching the word and proclaiming Christ, as in Acts 8 verses 4 and 5 and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Christ, as in Acts 8, verse 12. John reports Jesus as saying that being born again 
is the absolute condition for entering the kingdom. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, report nothing from Jesus about being born again. How is this possible? Only on the principle of equivalency. The Gospels speak of regeneration by the power of the seed or word gospel of the kingdom. Here's how the New Testament salvation program works, I suggest. Three corroborating accounts of Jesus' major theology of salvation are found in the parable of the sir, which is also a parable about parables, because Jesus said, if you don't understand this one, you cannot understand any of the parables. All three accounts speak of the believer being given the mystery, or equivalent mysteries, of the kingdom. To be given this wonderful revelation, of course, implies the Holy Spirit of illumination. But one does not have to have the word spirit there, because the illuminating power of the word is sufficient to imply the spirit. Jesus then described the typically disappointing effects of preaching the gospel. The audience will tend not to understand it. They will resist the word and the spirit. Then Jesus said this, If they did understand the word, they would repent and be forgiven. In other words, if they did, they would be in a position to repent and be forgiven. Unless they do, they cannot repent and be forgiven. The New American Standard Version is equally clear. Otherwise, that's to say conditioned on an intelligent reception of the gospel of the kingdom, which by equivalence is called the word of the kingdom, word of God in Luke, just word in Mark, and word of the kingdom in Matthew. In other words, on condition that they understand the kingdom, they can repent and receive forgiveness. Otherwise, they cannot. This is the equivalent statement to that of Jesus in John 12, verse 47. Receiving Jesus means receiving his words. And his word is embraced by the phrase, kingdom of God, gospel. Accepting Jesus is the constant equivalent of believing his word and words and, of course, keeping them and living out of them. One of the greatest equivalences is the practical equation of word and spirit. As William Barclay says so well, the word is the agent of rebirth. In Jewish thinking, a word was more than a sound expressing a meaning. A word actually did things. The word of God is not simply a sound, it's an effective cause. In the creation story, God's word creates. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. He sent his word and healed them. Psalm 107, verse 20. God's word will accomplish all that God pleases. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. God's word not only said things, it did things. That's a quotation from William Barclay's New Testament words. 
God's word also melts ice. Psalm 147, verse 18. Friedrich Büchsel says, A reception of the Spirit without preceding proclamation of the gospel does not occur in Luke. The connection between word and spirit is inseparable. That's from Büchsel's book, Der Geist Gottes im Neuen Testament, quoted by Brunner in his Theology of the Holy Spirit. So the connection between word and spirit is inseparable. The one involves the other, they are bound up with each other. No wonder then that Paul said that the gospel word of the kingdom is the power of God leading to salvation. Romans 1 verse 16. The wrong gospel destroys the power of God in our lives. What is said here can be said equally of the creative activity of God's Spirit. People who look for the Spirit in all sorts of places outside the creative, energetic words of God are liable to fall for another spirit. I love this great watchword of Jesus. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. John 6 verse 63. He was only saying what Zechariah 7.12 had said. They made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Did Jesus use the word grace? Not in the records we have of his sayings, but when he said, to you it has been given by God, a divine passive, to know the mystery of the kingdom, Mark 4 verse 11, grace, of course, is implied. It is the equivalent and does not have to be stated. If one is in the know and someone says he drinks soda, everyone ought to know that he drinks pop. Long ago in his popular English lectures, The Religion of Jesus and the Faith of Paul, written in 1923, philologist Adolf Deismann attempted to mark out the path that scholars should take in dealing with the various theological terms in Paul's letters. So, for example, when speaking of Paul's teaching on justification, Deismann wrote, According to my conception, justification is not the quintessence of Paulinism, but one witness, among others, to his experience of salvation. Justification is one ancient picture word, alongside many others. Justification is one note which, along with many others, redemption, adoption, and so on, is harmonized in the one chord that testifies to salvation. Similarly, on the variety of terms used by Paul, Deismann wrote, The impression of complexity in Paul has only arisen because we have not understood the similes as similes, which are synonymous with one another, though to the mind of antiquity they would easily have been so understood. 
The single so-called Pauline ideas have been isolated by us, and then the attempt has been made to reconstruct a chronological order of salvation. As a matter of fact, the religion of Paul is something quite simple. It is communion with Christ. In Dr. James Denny, we find a reflection of the same idea. The fact that all who speak to us in the New Testament are familiar with the experience of the Holy Spirit does not always make it easier for us to understand them. It is clear that various experiences are described in this way and we cannot refrain from asking whether experiences which one writer recounts without any reference to the Spirit would have been explained as pneumatic by another or vice versa. That's from the article on Holy Spirit in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, Volume 1. Yes, Paul's concepts are essentially quite simple. The New Testament presents a single unified salvation message. It's all about communion with Christ, but it's communion with Christ by thinking like Christ, which is sharing his heart, which is virtually equivalent to his mind, his spirit, and his words. Paul can refer to the Spirit of God as equivalent to the Spirit of Christ, and both are equivalent to the mind of Christ. And mind, of course, is equivalent to the words proceeding from the mind, which is equivalent to heart. Words are mind in action and verbalized spirit. Thus, this equivalency is so beautifully put in Zechariah 7, verse 12, God sent his word via his spirit in the prophets. Spirit denotes the seat of cognition and volition. Often, ruach, meaning spirit, means mind. So we read in the Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, Volume 3, page 1075. And Logos, in John 1.1, 1, 1, means mind, says Dr. Colin Brown. In the beginning, therefore, was the mind and thinking of God. One of the most brilliant things John recorded is in John 6.63. Jesus said, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Yes, words are spirit. They convey spirit. They transmit spirit. The mind of the spirit is the mind of God and of Jesus. John, late in the New Testament period, resorts to the strongest possible language to fend off all the pseudo-spirits which are confusing the truth. In the gospel, he calls the spirit the spirit of the truth. And this is equivalent to the comforter, which in 1 John 2, verse 1, is the equivalent of Jesus himself. That is Jesus, who for Paul is the Lord, the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. So the comforter, the paracletos or paraclete, 
is none other than the risen Jesus returning to his people as the guiding and reassuring presence of the Spirit and of truth. Truth is expressed in words, of course. In 1 John 5 verse 6, John actually says, the Spirit is the truth, both with definite article making them identical. In 2 John, he has dropped the word Spirit altogether. Has John given up belief in the Spirit? Of course not. But the false spirits are crowding in on the church. And I ask, has anything changed today? John uses equivalent language and speaks of truth being with the believers rather than the Spirit being with them. Here's a wonderfully instructive equivalency. Spirit equals truth. And of course, Jesus had already said, your word is truth. John 17, verse 17, Spirit with us, truth with us. Spirit of truth or comforter with us is equivalent to Jesus with us. Word abiding in us is the same as anointing spirit abiding in us, which is the same as Christ in us. And that's the same as the seed in us. This is nicely laid out by Raymond Brown in Appendix 1 of his Gospel according to John, Volume 1, page 511. Look at this wonderful equivalence. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3, verse 16. Go on allowing yourself to be filled with Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Pentecostalism, it seems to me, tries to pull all this apart and thus divorce the spirit from the truth, introducing another spirit. At its most extreme, its doctrine is tongues on your lips, which is equal to essential evidence of the spirit in you. No tongues, in other words, no salvation. This is a tragic mistake. That is a cruel form of legalism. No wonder John says, test the spirit, that is, test the words and teaching coming from a given exponent of spirit. Does that spirit tell you clearly about the human, historical Jesus, the having come as a human being Jesus, so the Greek reads, or is it another Jesus? See the theological test in 1 John 4, 1 to 6. The test was not the tongues test. Other freak tests today are the right pronunciation of Yahweh or calling Jesus Yeshua or Yahshua, which is not even a Hebrew word, as necessary for salvation or calculating the right day for observing Pentecost or agreeing to an extreme form of non-resistance far beyond the well-established Anabaptist principle of non-violence. Jesus' creed is the Jewish creed. The most instructive equivalency of all is that one God creed which unites Jesus with Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. In Mark 12 verses 28 to 34, we see Jesus in conversation 
with a genuine truth-seeking Unitarian scribe or professional Bible scholar. And Jesus confirms the creed of Israel as the true creed. Imagine the chaos when this equivalency between the Shema and Jesus' creed is said to be inadmissible. The introduction of the Trinity cut the Bible in half and made Jesus the exponent of a non-equivalent creed, as to say the creed about the triune God. The same game of words is being played when N.T. Wright, currently famous Bishop of Durham, breaks the equivalency between Jesus' Unitarian creed and the Christian creed. Paul never ever imagined another creed, another definition of God. To us, Paul said, there is, in comparison with pagan polytheistic systems, one God, the Father, and no God besides him. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. He then adds this, that we recognize one Lord Jesus, Messiah. Bishop N.T. Wright proposes to tell us that this one Lord Messiah is equivalent to one Lord God, that Jesus has been added to an expanded Shema. But this is to snap the chain of equivalency which unites Paul to Jesus and Jesus to the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Bishop Wright attempts a new unbiblical equivalency. That's to say he tries to make Paul into an incipient Trinitarian. He says that the Shema is now divided between one God the Father and one Lord Messiah. But this is precisely not what Paul ever intended. Jesus is the one Lord Messiah, just as the shepherds had so boldly declared in Luke 2 verse 11, calling him, Jesus, the Lord Messiah who was born. And as the whole of the New Testament states again and again, and Psalm 110.1 so beautifully distinguishes between Yahweh and my Lord, Adoni, not Adonai, but Adoni, who is the Messiah. Did Paul believe in the mystery or mysteries of the kingdom? Yes, indeed. He had not abandoned the gospel as Jesus preached it about the kingdom of God and its mysteries. Paul called himself and Apollos stewards of the mysteries of God. And Paul knew about the mystery of the gospel in Romans 16, verse 25. One of the greatest assaults on the unity of the New Testament and of Christianity came and comes in the form of so-called ultra-dispensationalism, which incredibly posits that the real gospel was only revealed to Paul in the latter part of his ministry. Paul actually said that his gospel was revealed to the apostles, plural, in Ephesians 3 verse 5, not to himself late in life, making him virtually the upstart founder of the Christian faith, as the Bullinger Bible so wrongly does. 
telling us that there are five different gospel messages, as Bullinger does in his very misleading Bible commentary. Paul was a Jesus kingdom gospel man to the core. The eight Acts kingdom texts also prove this beyond any doubt. Had he not been, he would have been in violation of the Great Commission and under his own curse for preaching another gospel. In Colossians 1 verse 6, Paul proves the equivalent status of his gospel with that of Jesus. He speaks, echoing the parable of the sower, of the word of the gospel bearing fruit and growing. Compare with that Jesus in Mark 4 verse 8. Growing, that is, from the day you heard it. That is exactly Jesus' point. You have to hear the word of the kingdom and when held persistently in the face of all difficulties and opposition from Satan, who hates the kingdom message, Luke 8 verse 12, then that message bears fruit. This is the fruit of the word, which is the same as the fruit of the spirit, since the tool of the spirit is the word of God, which is the gospel. Ephesians 6 verse 17. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 and chapter 2 verse 13, Paul uses the shorthand word, meaning the gospel of the kingdom, and speaks of his converts as Jesus did of his, as receiving the word with joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul shows that the gospel, when assimilated, is like a battery pack of energy strapped to the back. You receive the word, which is an energy at work, energite in the Greek, at work in you who believe it. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Believing the gospel as Jesus preached it unleashes power and energy. The prominence and space given to the parable of the sower in all three synoptic gospels may be a measure of its perceived importance for the evangelists and for the church at large. So remarks Dr. David Wenham in his book, Paul, Follower of Jesus or Founder of Christianity, written in 1995. At the same, David Wenham happily says something else in the same book, which leads me to a brief account of the major scholars supporting the Abrahamic insights and justifying the past 150 years of struggle. Also, I think, encouraging us not to concede one inch to the opposite camp in Christology and the definition of the gospel. Wenham says, Traditional Christian orthodoxy is that Jesus is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. Whether he saw himself as Son of God in any sense, let alone in any Trinitarian sense, is highly debatable. The phrase itself does not necessarily suggest divinity, either in Judaism 
or in early Christianity. That's from page 112 of Wenham's book, Paul, Follower of Jesus or Founder of Christianity, written in 1995. Note how the scholar gives with one hand and takes away with the other. He says first, whether Jesus saw himself as Son of God in any sense, and I note that if he didn't, the rock foundation of the church on him as Messiah, Son of God, is shattered. But Wenham knows that Jesus said nothing about being God the Son. Professor Loofs, writing his History of Dogma in 1895, still not translated into English, spells out in detail the fateful move from Jesus as Messiah to Jesus, so-called, as God the Son. It was the philosophically-minded apologists Aristides, Justin Martyr, Tatian, and Theophilus who invented a prehistory for Jesus. They tacked on a pre-existence to his existence. They made two existences, and thus two different Jesuses, cutting Jesus in half or doubling him. The church is now saddled with this giant ecclesiastical blunder caused by forgetting the Hebrew Bible and redefining the faith in terms of Greek cosmology and philosophy. Lufs has brilliantly described the downhill path from the apocalyptic kingdom Jesus to a strange hybrid figure supposed to be 100% God and 100% man. Would you believe it? The church theologians then argued for centuries about this invented Jesus. They tossed him around like some rag doll using hair-splitting and fearfully complex terminology to define their Jesus. No doubt it kept them in business, but what did it do for the average layman who needed to know that Jesus was the ultimate human being, the second Adam, God's final prophet, as prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, a man in perfect relation to God, his Father. The Church of God is not alone in complaining about that Trinitarian Jesus of the standard creeds. Hans Küng observed in his book on being a Christian, neither Ignatius nor any of the later Christian writers wanted to give up Jewish monotheism. By theism, and tritheism were always rejected in principle. But the more Jesus was placed on one level of being with the Father, and the more this was described in essential so-called categories, so many more difficulties were created in the way of reconciling conceptually monotheism and divine sonship. The distinction of the Son from God and unity with God. 
This development involved almost insurmountable difficulties and in practice complete failure for the mission and preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ among Jews and many centuries later among the Muslims. People had largely adapted themselves to the Hellenistic ways of thought and lifestyle as determined by the schools of philosophy, the mystery cults and the Roman state. Philosophical terms became increasingly precise, differences between the schools more delicate, explanations more complicated, dogmas now in the form of state laws to protect orthodoxy more numerous. But misunderstandings, factions and even schisms also became more numerous. Even the great councils of the post-Constantinian era could only partially overcome them. That's from Hans Kung's book on being a Christian. Kung has a solution. He says, the true man, Jesus of Nazareth, is for faith the real revelation of the one true God. Then he says, pre-existence of the Son is a thought that is particularly hard to grasp today. There is in the whole New Testament no teaching about one God in three persons or ways of being. No teaching about a three-one God. That's from Hans Kung's book, Christianity, page 127. Since neither the Jesus of history announced his own pre-existence, nor did the Jewish Christian community produce a trinity, where did this trinity teaching come from, actually? The answer? It is the product of a great paradigm shift from the original apocalyptic paradigm to the Hellenistic old church paradigm. The result of the Hellenization of Christology. This tectonic shift amounted to an alienation process. Kung tries his best to approve the Council of Nicaea, but he admits it is unarguable that the council remained trapped in concepts, ideas and ways of thinking which would have been totally foreign to the Jew Jesus of Nazareth and the original community. Through the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon, we were placed at a great distance from the New Testament. It's a quotation from Hans Kung's book, on being a Christian. Kung elsewhere describes how the Catholic Church went wild with its speculations about Mary, how she was a virgin after bearing Jesus and remained a virgin all her life. They did not hesitate to use Da Vinci Code like apocryphal gospels to promote their fantasies. But then note how Kung fails to believe the words of Gabriel to Mary. Gabriel explains what the title Son of God means. 
As Luke writes in Luke 135, precisely because of the begetting by the Father in Mary, he will be called the Son of God. For that reason and no other. Now Kung's words. First, he acknowledges what Gabriel says. It is clear that this explanation, for this reason precisely he'll be called Son of God, provides a reason for the application to Jesus of the title Son of God. But then King rejects Gabriel. He says the virgin birth attested only in the prehistories of Matthew and Luke does not belong to the center of the gospel. The Christian message can be proclaimed even without these theological legends which are marginal to the New Testament. Jesus' divine sonship is not dependent on the virgin birth. He is God's son, says Kung, not because God, instead of a man, effected his origin, but because he's chosen and destined as God's son, as from Kung's book on being a Christian. Dr. Chuck Swindoll does no better. He has this to say about the Son of God. When the title Son of God is used of Christ, it has nothing to do with this birth to Mary. As the Son of God, he was not born. He was given. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. The term Son of God refers to Jesus' eternal relationship with the Father. That's from Swindoll and Zuck's book, Understanding Christian Theology, written in 2003. Are we not shocked and appalled that as early as the second century, Justin Martyr was putting out the idea that the Son of God engineered his own conception in Mary, that he was alive, acting, and well, appearing in person long before he was born. Neither Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, nor any other man saw the Father, the ineffable Lord of all and of Christ, but they saw him who was according to his will, his Son, being God and an angel, because he ministered to his will, whom it pleased him to be born a man through the virgin who also was the fire when he conversed with Moses from the bush, and Theophilus also promotes a pre-human and therefore essentially non-human Jesus. I quote, God's word, through whom God made all things, being his power and his wisdom, assuming the person of the Father and Lord of all, went into the paradise garden and conversed with Adam, who heard his voice. But what else is this voice but the word of God, who is also his son? What would Jesus have said to Peter if Peter had replied to the question, who do you say I am, by saying, I'm the son of God who showed up in Eden and spoke to Adam. I doubt if Peter would have graduated from the Messianic school he would have been guilty of promoting another Jesus. 
Is it really impossible for us to do some kindly whistleblowing? When Chuck Swindoll speaks without batting an eyelid about angels watching as Mary changed God's diapers. Dr. Swindoll is Chancellor, or was at that time, of Dallas Theological Seminary. Is that the best that the system can do? Is this not to make the faith a laughingstock of Jews and Muslims and skeptics generally? Is the public really impressed by Billy Graham's dictum that, quote, in heaven we're going to polish rainbows, tend heavenly gardens, and prepare heavenly dishes? I note that Paul said, in fact, that we're going to fix the world with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Is not that dictum about polishing rainbows enough to keep those 98% of Londoners permanently out of the church? Has not the situation reached an unbearable rock bottom when the Bishop of St. Edmundsbury recently rebuked an innocent writer who urged the clergy to take a clear stand against homosexuality. The bishop replied to the man who clearly had the Bible on his side, I received your letter of the 23rd of January, and I'm sorry that your experience of life is so narrow that it leads you to write such rubbish. You make the most appalling assumptions about people who just happen to be homosexuals on the basis of your deeply inbuilt destructive prejudice. And I add that the poor man was only quoting the Bible. To then support your mindless assertions, the bishop went on, by reference to the Bible, merely exacerbates the insupportable. The only sensible thing in your letter was the final quotation. You shall know them by their fruits. How true, said the bishop, and the smell of rotten fruit in your letter was overwhelming. So I ask, what are we going to do about this? Firstly, be immensely encouraged by the new books and websites appearing as support for the central truths of the Bible about Jesus and the Gospel. With Dr. Colin Brown, seasoned systematician at Fuller, no less, who said, to be called son of God in the Bible means you are not God. And to read John 1, 1 as if it said, in the beginning with the son, is patently wrong. That's from Dr. Colin Brown's article, Trinity and Incarnation in Search of Contemporary Orthodoxy in the journal Ex Auditu number 7 of 1991. With those good quotes in mind, can we not proceed with confidence? James Dunn, the most celebrated Christologist of our time, was personally interviewed by our own Dan Mages, Marquidetta and Lee Greer. It is clear that he has given up belief in pre-existence, even in John. He is persuaded of our understanding that Jesus is what the Word became, not the pre-existing God, the Son of Orthodoxy. I note that James Dunn's Christology in the Making, 
second edition is a wonderful confirmation of the Abrahamic faith and stand on who Jesus is. If these leading men are coming to the conclusions equivalent to those of the Unitarians who struggled manfully against the odds to promote the real human Jesus, can we do any less? Could we not follow the example of Paul, who lobbied people for truth by going into the agora or marketplace of his day? Would not the equivalent today be the internet? Is this not God's gift to us for preaching the kingdom of God gospel worldwide? And then the end will come, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14. Professor Bart Ehrman gives us just the encouragement to action that we need. He says this, Already by the end of the first century, Christians in some circles proclaimed that Jesus was himself divine, that he existed prior to his birth, that he created the world and all that is in it. This is a far cry from the humble beginnings of Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet. The concerns which drove the early debates about who Jesus is were far removed from the concerns of Jesus himself. One of the strands of Christianity which has been consistently marginalized throughout the course of the past 1900 years has been one which took the authentic words of Jesus seriously. The historical Jesus did not teach about his own divinity or pass on to his disciples the doctrines which later came to be embodied in the Nicene Creed. Jesus' concerns were those of a first-century Jewish apocalyptist. What is clear is that the apocalyptic Jesus we've uncovered is a far cry from the Jesus many people in our society today know. That's from Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, written in 1999. We can take as our basis the remarkable conclusion of Adolf Harnack, Prince of Church Historians. He said this, Jesus is the beginning, purpose, and principle of the creation. But the Greeks, wrongly as a result of their cosmological interest, embraced this thought as a fundamental proposition. The complete Greek Christology, then, is expressed as follows. Christ who saved us, being first spirit and the beginning of all creation, became flesh. That, said Adolf Harnack, is the fundamental theological and philosophical creed on which the whole Trinitarian and Christological speculation of the Church of the succeeding centuries was built, and it is thus the root of the orthodox system of dogmatics. With this transition, the theories concerning Christ are removed from the Jewish and Old Testament soil, and transplanted to the Greek one. The appearance of Christ is now an assumption of flesh, so-called, 
and immediately the intricate questions about the connection of the pre-existing heavenly and spiritual being with the flesh simultaneously arise. But the flesh was reckoned as something unsuitable for Christ and foreign to him as a spiritual being. Thus the Christian religion was mixed up with the refined asceticism of a perishing civilization and a foreign substructure was given to its system of morality. The Logos was also transformed into a cosmic force and thereby secularized. And a quotation from Adolf Harnack. I had this, it was no longer the gospel of the kingdom, the saving seed facilitating immortality and a place in the kingdom. I think the gift of the Abrahamic understandings about God, Jesus, and the gospel of the kingdom need to be thoroughly instilled in all church members so that each can become an army of one as well as part of a team equipped to talk to others about what they've learned. This will entail teaching about how we differ from the so-called system and how this arose and how important it is. How men such as Servetus gave his life literally for these truths. For a very informative as well as gut-wrenching account of his tragic death at the hands of Calvin, please read Out of the Flames by Lawrence and Nancy Goldstone, and of course Professor Marion Hiller's book, Michael Servetus, Intellectual Giant, Humanist and Martyr. Also his Case of Michael Servetus, who lived from 1511 to 1533, The Turning Point in the Struggle for Freedom of Conscience, written in 1997. It is all too easy for church to become a routine in which the church is comforted week by week, but never really becomes a power for changing the world, leavening society one person at a time. We cite the passage in Ephesians about the work of pastor-teachers being to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But does this really happen? If Paul exhorted the Corinthians to be, and I quote, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and if he was encouraged when in prison that his church members had become courageous proponents of the faith, Philippians 1 verse 14, is not that the ideal which Paul hoped for the church at all times? Three remarkable equivalences seem to point to one urgent task and a costly one. In Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, there is no one who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not get a hundred times as much now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land though with great troubles and in the age to come eternal life or the life of the age to come 
Now notice how Matthew reported that saying, And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will have eternal life, the life of the age to come. Matthew 19 verse 29. Luke thinks of commitment to the kingdom of God, which is the same idea in different words. Luke reported Jesus as saying, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no man who has given up house or wife or brothers or father or mother or children because of the kingdom of God who will not get much more in this time and in the age to come eternal life, the life of the age to come. That's from Luke chapter 18, verses 29 and 30. To give all to Jesus is to give our finest effort towards his gospel of the kingdom. Appendix 1. How the faith went wrong. Here are some comments from Dr. Friedrich Lufs, 1858 to 1928, professor of church history at the University of Halle in Germany. Professor Lufs described the process of the early corruption of biblical Christianity. The apologists, the church fathers so-called, like Justin Martyr, mid-2nd century, laid the foundation for the perversion or corruption of Christianity into a revealed, in fact, philosophical teaching. Specifically, their Christology affected the later development disastrously by taking for granted the transfer of the concept of Son of God onto the pre-existing Christ. They were the cause of the Christological problem of the 4th century. They caused a shift in the point of departure of Christological thinking away from the historical Christ and onto the issue of pre-existence. They thus shifted attention away from the historical life of Jesus, putting it into the shadow and promoting instead the capital I incarnation, that's to say, of a pre-existent son. They tied Christology to cosmology and could not tie it to soteriology. The Logos teaching is not a so-called higher Christology than the customary one. It lags, in fact, far behind the genuine appreciation of Christ. According to their teaching, it is no longer God who reveals himself in Christ, but the Logos, the inferior God, a God who, as God, is subordinated to the highest God. This is called inferiorism, or subordinationism. In addition, the suppression of the economic Trinitarian ideas by metaphysical pluralistic concepts of the divine triad or trias, this can be traced to the apologists. That's a quote from Friedrich Lufs in his Leitfaden zum Studium des Dogmengeschichte, Manual for the Study of the History of Dogma written in 1890. Luf says this as well. Polytheism entered the faith camouflaged. 
Another quotation, the criticism of orthodox Christology is not the property of a few people only. To a certain extent, it may be considered as generally recognized by the whole German Protestant theology of the present time. At present, and he was writing in 1911, I do not know of a single professor of evangelical theology in Germany who thinks it right to reproduce the old orthodox formulas. All learned Protestant theologians of Germany really admit unanimously that the orthodox Christology does not do sufficient justice to the truly human life of Jesus and that the orthodox doctrine of the so-called two natures in Christ cannot be retained in its traditional form. That was Professor Luth's lecturing in Ohio in 1911 in a lecture entitled, What is the Truth About Jesus Christ? And for further reading, please consult Willibald Beischlag, who lived from 1823 to 1900, evangelical theologian, professor at Halle, in his book, Neutestamentliche Theologie of 1895. Appendix 2. Quotes from a Catholic scholar. The following quotations are from the book Born Before All Time, The Dispute Over Christ's Origin, by German-Roman Catholic scholar Karl Josef Kuschel, with a foreword by Hans King. He says this on Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Present-day exegetes have drawn the radically opposite conclusions that the Philippians hymn does not speak of the pre-existence of Christ at all. Indeed, an increasing number of present-day New Testament scholars, with good reason, question the premises of exegesis hitherto and cannot see in those verses pre-existence, let alone incarnation in that Philippian hymn. Quoting Catholic scholar Jerome Murphy O'Connor, Kuschel says, As the righteous man par excellence, Christ was the perfect image or icon of God. He was totally what God intended man to be. His sinless condition gave him the right to be treated as if he were God, that is, to enjoy the incorruptibility in which Adam was created. This right, however, he did not use to his own advantage, but he gave himself over to the consequence of a mode of existence that was not his by accepting the condition of a slave, which involved suffering and death. That's from Kuschel's book, page 252. Kuschel says this also, The sources are neither wisdom reflections on the righteous sufferer, nor mythological speculations about a pre-existent divine being, but they are the messiology of the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. So verses 6 and 7 would not be speaking 
in Philippians 2 about a pre-existent heavenly being or of capital I incarnation, but solely about the life of Christ on earth. That's from page 254 of Kuschel's book, Born Before All Time. Quoting the modern Protestant exegete Matthias Risi in a 1987 article, Jesus is the man Jesus who was exalted because he humbled himself and at the end will receive eschatological homage from all. This is clearly a Jewish Christian interpretation of the career of Christ on the basis of a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. Kuschel quotes from another Protestant exegete, a German named Klaus Berger. The conclusion is that from this sequence it follows that Philippians 2.6 is primarily concerned with making statements about high status and by no means necessarily concerned with pre-existence. I do not think that it can be proved that this is a statement about incarnation. Another quotation from Kuschel, the Jewish background is enough for understanding this hymn and indeed for providing continuity with Aramaic Jewish Christianity in the proclamation of Christ. And so humbling himself or emptying himself is not to be understood as the act of a mythological pre-existent heavenly being, but as a qualification of the man Jesus. What does all this mean for the question of the pre-existence of Christ? To sum up, we can now say that if we take note of the linguistic subtleties, the dynamic of inner movement, and the poetic form of the text, this hymn in Philippians 2 does not contain what numerous interpreters seek and find in it. It does not contain an independent statement about pre-existence or even a Christology of pre-existence. In 1977, the Freiburg exegete Anton Vertel also came to a similarly sober conclusion. He says this, No pre-existence of Christ before the world with an independent significance can be recognized even in Philippians 2. On Galatians 4 verse 4, James Dunn's conclusion is, Paul and his readers in writing and reading these words may well have thought only of the man Jesus, whose ministry in Palestine was of divine commissioning and whose uniquely intimate relation with God was proved and enhanced by his resurrection, despite his rejection by the stewards of Israel's heritage. On the phrase, God sent forth his son, quoting Bas van Ersel in a 1982 article, does he send him from heaven? This is not mentioned even once. In contrast to what Wisdom 9 verse 10 says about wisdom, there's no mention either of this son having previously been with God, as is the case with wisdom in Wisdom 9 verse 9, 
On the contrary, the son who is sent was born under the law at a moment when the Torah was already in force. And he was born from a woman, Galatians 4 verse 4. And he is sent when the fullness of time comes. What Paul writes about the sending of the Son can in no way be understood of a situation preceding the beginning of history, but rather of an event following Jesus' birth and preceding his resurrection. Kushel says this too. For the Apostle Paul, this statement in Philippians 2 evidently does not presuppose the belief that the one who was sent had a real prior existence with God or was a divine being. But Paul is quite firmly convinced that the significance of this concrete historical Jesus can never be understood as anything but that he is the Son of God from the beginning of his earthly activity. That's from Kushel's book on page 277. On whether Paul, in Romans 9, 5, calls Jesus God, I quote from the Catholic New Testament scholar Otto Kuss, the question whether Paul directly and explicitly described Jesus as God must in all probability be answered in the negative. For Paul, in contrast to us, God always sounds, to put it in contemporary language, like God the Father, in which case the statement Christ is God would be simply impossible. This interpretation of Bas van Liersel may be correct here. He says, but of pre-existence and equality of being with God, we cannot discover any trace in Paul's letters. Paul's authentic Christology, says another quotation, does not recognize any independent statements about a being of Jesus Christ before the world or before time. In direct statements about being with God, before appearing on earth or about his own mediation at creation, nothing about that, not even identifying Jesus with God. For Paul, the quotation goes on, Christ is not a divine heavenly being in the Gnostic mythological sense. He is not a pre-existent divine being who left the heavenly world once again to ascend to God in heaven as was assumed wrongly by Bultmann's interpretation of Paul. As for Paul, another quotation, as for Paul, so too for Matthew, Jesus is the wisdom of God as a human person and is not as pre-existent as hypostatized wisdom. He is, to put it briefly, wisdom become flesh, which has to suffer the fate of persecution. It is Jesus being begotten by the Spirit of God in the womb, which is the foundation for his divine sonship in Matthew and Luke. Nowhere does Matthew tribute to Jesus a saying about heavenly origin or even his real 
pre-existence, nor does he allow any of the followers of Jesus to make such a claim. In 1954, Hans Konzelmann had arrived at the view that in the title Son of God in Luke, there was no idea of a physical divine nature that was already evident from the fact that the idea of pre-existence is completely lacking. The Catholic exegetes Gerhard Schneider and Joseph Fitzmaier agree in arriving at the conclusion that Luke, in fact, does not think in terms of a pre-existence of Christ. Fitzmaier adds this, in Lucan theology, there is no question of Jesus' pre-existence or incarnation. Both Matthew and Luke clearly want to stress, while at the same time repudiating both adoptionist ideas and ideas governed by a pre-existence Christology, that Jesus did not become Son of God from a particular age, nor was he Son of God from eternity. He was Son of God from his birth. Another quotation, Hans Konzelmann has convincingly stated that Luke remains with the Christology of the synoptic tradition which does not know of any pre-existence. Quoting Raymond Brown, it must have been the pre-existence of Jesus and his heavenly origin which had been lacking in the Christology of the apostolic Christians. Both apostolic and Johannine Christians say that Jesus is God's Son. Yet Johannine Christians have come to understand that this means that he is ever at the Father's side. John 1.18 Not belonging to this world. John 17.14 But to a heavenly world above. John 3.13.31 Once again, the Christology I attribute to the apostolic Christians is not a pure hypothesis based on an interpretive reading of the fourth gospel. From the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, we know of late first century Christians who acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God through conception without a human father, but in whose high Christology there is no hint of pre-existence. They know Jesus who is King, Lord and Saviour from the moment of his birth at Bethlehem, but not a Jesus who says, before Abraham even came into existence, I am. On John chapter 1, a quotation. From this it may be concluded that the Jesus, he who is the Logos in person, is also the wisdom of God in human form. What Rudolf Bultmann concluded may still be valid today. Jesus is not presented in literal seriousness as a pre-existent divine being who came in human form to earth to reveal unprecedented secrets. Rather, the mythological terminology is intended to express the absolute and decisive significance of his word. So John is not concerned with the epiphany of a divine being, 
but with the incarnation of the Word of God himself, not with the miraculous formation of a divine being among us, but with the manifestation of God in a historical human being. Another quotation, Jesus did not proclaim himself God, but rather was understood by the community after Easter in the spirit as the word, lowercase w, as the word of God in person. Secondly, the disciples of Jesus did not claim that Jesus was God either. They too did not deify their hero.